Can y'all hear me? This thing on? <laughs> okay. Uh, something I, I would like to, anybody here that suffers from potential seizures, uh, my slides <laughs> may, uh, may exacerbate that, so brace yourselves. Okay, Philippians chapter 1, verse uh, 1 through 11. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and the deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you in all my prayers for all of you. I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart. And whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. Testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Dear blessed God in heaven, Lord, please be with us this morning. Let our hearts and minds be open. Lord, let us not be like people that look into the mirror and forget what we look like when we turn away. Let us not just be hearers of the word, but doers of the word. Lord, let your, Lord, your word manifest itself in us so that we can carry it and apply it when we leave this building. We love you, God, and we ask all in his name. Amen. Okay, so I can't really think of less emotional language or less romantic language than knowledge and depth of insight when I'm talking about love. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't seem like it fits. You know, I was talking about this with my wife on Valentine's Day. I don't, <laughs> I don't know how impressed she would be if I tried to nerd out on her a little bit uh, about how much I loved her. And yet, it talks about this, and this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. So he's not saying that your love necessarily will abound, get bigger, but it's the qualities of our love will abound more in knowledge and depth of insight. And so I think it's important to figure out what the focus of that love is, okay? So our agape, the word it's using here, sacrificial love, would abound more in the quality of knowledge and the quality of depth of insight. And the pr what will that produce? Is that our love, right, our sacrificial love growing and abounding in knowledge and depth of insight produces the ability to discern, the ability to be pure, the ability to be blameless, right, and produce the fruits of righteousness. Okay, now having said that, there's, there's many a slip betwixt a cup and a lip, you know, and so there's like, I understand it, and it said, okay, that, that this is true, and this is factual, but how do we get there? What is that, can, how does that all match up? So uh, there's this big canyon between the two of them. And so what we see here with this idea of knowledge and depth of insight is really epi epistemology. It's a theory of knowledge, okay? So we use it in the social sciences. It's qualities of knowing. It's that intersection between intellectual knowledge, knowledge of the brain, and experiential knowledge, the things that happen in your day-to-day -day life. What is it that connects those two? Okay, so we have to establish some terms. So we have yada, which is to know in the Old Testament. And we have epigenosis, which is intellectual knowledge in the New Testament. Then we have this idea of aesthesis, which is perception or experiential knowledge in the New Testament. And the connecting file, something that, that adds these two together, something that connects it and gives it a target. 
gives it a focus, gives it a purpose. So yada is to know or to ascertain or to learn by seeing. It's used figuratively, it's used literally, it's used euphemistically in the Old Testament, and it probably encapsulates both of them, intellectual and experiential knowledge. It doesn't really differentiate, but the Greek does, okay? So epigenosis, this idea of full knowledge or scrutiny, examination, detailed examination, and asthesis. And this was pretty interesting because it's only used one time in the entire Bible and, and only one time in the New Testament, and it speaks of, of sensation or perception. It's knowledge but not just intellectual knowledge. So Plato, when you look at this, he says some of these aestheses have names. Sight, sound, smell, fear, pleasure, pain, heat, cold. But he said there were countless other sensations or na unnamed aestheses, right, of other emotions, other sensations, other, other experiences that were impossible to be named, okay? But who cares, right? <laughs> Who cares, okay? So you have this idea of intellectual knowledge, and we have this idea of experiential knowledge, but who cares in a biblical sense, in a Christian sense? We come here. Let's see. Does this statement, if we know something, is it synonymous with being sure of it? If we know something, is it synonymous with being certain of it? Okay, well, let's try. Let's do some fill in the blank. It's funny because every time we do fill in the blank on those note sheets, I see a bunch of people like, whoo. And they start actually writing in the words. And so I was like, oh, that's pretty cool. So let's do it up here. So blank is being sure of what we hope for, certain of what we do not see. Okay? And then without blank, it's impossible. It will. Don't worry about it. Okay, you get filled in. Okay, without blank, it's impossible to please God. See? Ah, that happened. Okay, without faith. Without faith. So it's being sure of something. It's being certain of it. So what I would say is, faith, therefore, has to be a kind of knowing. More than that, I think faith is that connection between intellectual knowledge, knowledge of the brain, and spiritual knowledge, knowledge of the life, the thing that happens. And more than that, I argue that it's we know something in theory, then we act in what? Faith. That we act in faith. It's knowledge put into action. And then we know or we learn through experience. So what does that mean? And we still have to figure out what the target is, what the focus is. And so we talks about in Genesis 15, verse 6, where it says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And we know, first we know that this word aman, believe, is the Old Testament word for faith, even though it's, it's directly translated as believe or belief. Right? We know because it's reinforced in Hebrews 11, the hall of faith, where it says, Abraham, the man of faith, right, believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. But then in the same passage, two verses later, Abraham says, yeah, but how can I know? Yada. How can I connect that intellectual knowledge? And so I think it does break that out a little bit more when we get to the New Testament, this idea of pistis, or faith, in the New Testament. Now, Remember, all this language that we're using, all this Greek that we're using, is appropriated from the pagan Greek language. That's what's interesting. I mean, we use it in Christian dialect, but it's appropriated. It's borrowed. It's taken. It's, it's, it's used from something that wasn't divine in its, in its origin. So Aristotle, looking at this, is like it's a means of persuasion. That's how he sees it. So he has this idea of art, artless proofs or pistis atechnoi. So it's something that you borrow. It's, uh, you take a speech, you take something like that. It's a pre-written something that you just pr produce. But then you have artistic proofs, or pistis in technoi, persuasion, where the, 
the speaker gets down and writes a very persuasive argument and presents it. I, that's not what's here. Because it tells us in 1 Corinthians 2, 3 through 5, that when Paul gets up there, he says that my preaching were not with persuasive words of wisdom, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith would not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. It's the second one, that the second idea of pistis, or faith, that is pretty useful. And you're going to have to brace yourself for a little bit of uh, social science and nerdery here, but... It's the second meaning of pistis that, that is very useful to me. And it's a method of reasoning or logic, which sounds strange that you talk about faith and logic and the same kind of thing because we tend to think of faith as almost this unlogical thing. It's just, we just accept it. But it's, in, it's terribly logical. I think that uh, Pastor Marty would reinforce that where our faith isn't blind. It's reasoned. It's logical. It makes sense. So we have this idea of infamy which is the process of deductive logic. So we take a certain conclusion and work it all the way back to its origin. Or you have inductive logic or paradigma, which is we take a phenomenon that we can see to generalizable outcomes, where we think it will go. Right? This is important here in a couple of slides, so you're going to have to keep that in uh, the back of your brain housing group. Okay, so what is the target of this? We talked about knowing depth of insight in our love. But what's the focus of our love? And so what does Paul say? He says as much. What does he want to know? I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing and suffering. More than that, he says something really crazy. Right? He said, for I determined not to know anything among you except for Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, reading a little bit from R.C. Sproul, you know, he talks about Paul's astonishing statement. He points out that Paul at this point and, and even beyond, by 21, he probably has the equivalent of about two PhDs. He writes on the entire scope of theology and has this insight, this broad breadth of insight. But he only has one message. That two PhDs later and, and an entire scope of theology, and he only has one message. Jesus Christ, him crucified. That's kind of amazing. So what I think it is, is this is that idea of a paradigm or that idea of inductive logic, that idea of knowledge. What is that first knowledge? It's the most, one of the most, historically attested to historical events in history. Jesus Christ, him crucified. Jesus Christ and him crucified. It's the paradigm. It's the way that we see everything in life, whether it's raising kids, which is how, this is how I raise kids. Right? You put them between your legs, they can't crawl away and go to sleep. Okay. Raising families. Right? Dealing with traffic on the 95 or out in front of Fort Belvoir. And by the way, this is a screenshot from the 95 right now, okay, from this morning. <laughs> or work, right? Or our service to the nation, or even how we see injustice. Everything we see, everything we think, our knowledge is based and seen through the prism of that one event, of that one thing. Jesus Christ, him crucified. So how does knowledge, knowledge in our love, produce the ability to discern what is best, to be pure, to be blameless, and to produce the fruits of righteousness. Okay, it's not, I don't think it's enough that we just know these things, but, it, but again, that we can explain them to our sons and daughters, that we can, that we can live them out and we can understand this, this roadmap. And I think that Second Peter chapter 1, verse 5 through 8, gives a great roadmap for, for practically understanding this. And it tells us that for this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to your goodness knowledge, 
and to your knowledge, self-control, and your self-control, perseverance, and to your perseverance, brotherly love, or mutual affection, and to your mutual affection, sacrificial love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, then they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of Jesus Christ. Okay, so this is the part where you're going to have to brace yourself, <laughs> okay, because this gets a little, there's a build going on here. But there's a huge gap between faith and sacrificial love, okay, in, at least in my mind. Is there, there's a world of difference in there, but he fills it in, and he gives us a little bit of a roadmap. okay. It goes all the way across, and you can see all these different qualities that lead from one to the other, but the key part here is faith, that first part of knowing. And what's important here is that whether you're doing a deathbed confession or whether it's a foxhole confession or whether you're saved at, at seven years old, the moment that we believe we're given the capacity for all of these things through Christ living in us. That's important to know, that day one, you have that capacity. But it also tells us to work out our faith with what? Fear and trembling. There is something to grow in there. More than that, he tells us to take up our cross w- once, right? Daily! Take up our cross daily, right? And then it tells us also that our love should abound more and more, which means that there's a position where it's less and less. There is a sense of growth in our faith. Not just in our faith, but we step out in it. So there's something out here, and he wants our, gro- our love to get deeper, more concrete. So how does it happen? Okay, so Hebrews 11:6, 6, it starts there. It says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. But then it goes on to the next part, John 14, 20, uh, John 14, 23, where it says, if you love me, you'll, follow, you'll obey me. You'll follow my commandments. So this was difficult for me. As soon as I got saved, I was like, this is awesome. Let's get saved, right? But then I, I, don't, I don't know any theology. I hadn't read the Bible. Not enough, Right? So all I knew was the golden rule. It says, love, love your neighbor as you love yourself. I was like, okay. And being a jarhead sometimes is good because it does what it's told. You know, we take instruction well, right? And so I was like, all right, I don't know much, but I'll do that. And the interesting thing is, as I did that in faith, then there was experiential knowledge, right, which became intellectual knowledge, which allowed me to theorize and say, well, if he was faithful in this, then he'll probably be faithful in the next thing. And it produces the joy of the Spirit, or the fruits of the Spirit, in this case, joy. Then we go forward to James 2, 18, where it talks about faith and deeds. You show me your faith without your deeds, and I'll show you my faith by my deeds. This is what James is saying. And so I was like, okay, well, so I guess I'm supposed to do stuff. What is it I'm supposed to do? Well, one of the things I was supposed to do is tithing. I'm just using that as an example, right? That was a, that was a little bit of a challenge for me, right? I don't, I don't mind admitting. So I used a technique called uh, bobbing for tithe. And so <laughs> the, the, the collection would start. I'd pull out my wallet. I'm like, oh, hajat! And I'd put my hand in and pull out a bill. It was never more than one. So whatever I came out with is what God got, right? And, and this is the sad part is, is that, n- number one, I don't care bills above 20. So he, he at a top end, he's getting 20 or less, you know? And when I pull out 20, I was like, dang, Dallas, I'm proud of you, man. You're like, look at this, man, generous, Right? You're, I'm slamming down a 20 right now, you know? That just happened, right? And then, unfortunately, I read Malachi 3.10. It says, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. And this is the weird part is this is one of the places where God said to test him. Say, test me, right? And find out if I don't open the floodgates of heaven and fill up the storehouse so that it's overflowing. I was like, all right. All right, let's, let's give it a stay in court. 
And so I did. And so you start to step out in that, and it becomes experiential knowledge. And that experiential knowledge becomes intellectual knowledge, where you're willing to test and, and take it further. But it also produces, again, the fruits of the Spirit as we go along. Then we've got this idea of self-control, and that's when the party started. Oh, yeah. That was, uh, that was <laughs> yeah, didn't see that one coming, right? So Acts 24, 25, it talks about this idea of uh, self-control being the man who can master his passions and desires, particularly his sensual appetites. And living in the world until I was in my late 20s, I carried a lot of that with me into my marriage, into my walk with Christ. I mean, that thought life was still there. I mean, I, it, it was, I, I, I would pray sometimes, like, is there any way we could just, like, whoop, just hit the delete button that we could redact, you know? Just, because I, obviously I didn't want to lose all my, everything I learned up to this point, you know? But I just wanted to redact parts of it, right? But I couldn't, and it kept coming back. And so what I realized is this idea of self-control to me at least seems like daily battles, individual battles, not wars, battles, specific fights, with specific thoughts, specific things. So if we're wrestling with pornography or wrestling with drugs or alcohol or anger, which I think is a real thing and I've seen it, and bitterness, right? That's a daily thing. And so step out in faith and you experience some victories and huge failures, right? But it still becomes spiritual or uh, experiential knowledge. It produces intellectual knowledge. I'm willing to theorize and take it further, but it also produces fruits of the spirit increased patience through this okay and if self-control is individual battles then perseverance must is is at least as i understand it the war then because again romans 5 3 5 one of my favorites says not only so but we also rejoice in our sufferings why <laughs> that sounds ridiculous who enjoy, who rejoices in their sufferings you know but if you can see how the conclusion of it then it makes sense suffering produces perseverance perseverance produces character character produces hope and hope is not disappoint us. And so when I look back at the things that maybe I lost or didn't lose, right, it's, it's a little easier to take that. So if self-control are day-to-day uh, battles, then perseverance is a lifetime of battles, won and lost, right? It's the ability to persevere. So when we do that, it becomes experiential knowledge. We extrapolate it forward into, into intellectual knowledge and, and theorize about what the future would hold, Okay. And then it also produces more fruits of the Spirit, in this case, self-control. And then we go further forward. What's amazing here is I thought, I was, when I first read this, I was like, did God, you know, did he make, make a mistake here? <laughs> shouldn't, we, shouldn't, shouldn't godliness be like at the end? Wouldn't that be the end result? And then I realized, Dallas, this isn't spiritual martial arts. This isn't like tan belt, green belt, brown, you know, blue belt, you know, purple belt, all that stuff, right? These aren't higher classifications. The things that equip you to do the next one. That's short of the first one. Without faith, it's impossible to do any of them. Right? And without godliness, it's absolutely impossible for me to do the last two. So it starts out there with Romans 12, 2, where it says, do not be conformed any longer, but be transformed. So there's something in me that's, that's incapable of doing it in my original state. I can, I can attest to that right now. Okay? Then the second one, this idea of 2 Peter 3, 11, we're just talking about living holy and godly lives. So when I first got saved and I'm trying to explain my faith to my sons, they were like, Daddy, what does holy mean? I was like, means holy. <laughs> Whenever you define a word with its, with its own name, you've already failed, right? 
what's the sun? It's the sun. Well, it's the sun, you know. Then that's a problem. So I had to look it up. So I looked it up, and I was like, well, what does holy mean? And it turns out it means the same as sanctified. Well, okay, great. What does sanctified mean? And what I found out it meant, it boiled down, set apart, useful to one end, and only a sacred end. That's it. So we become useless to everything else and useful to only one end. But how do we do that? And they told us in Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. And I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. So this idea of godliness is that capacity to do the last two, which blows my mind because I thought I could do them before, before becoming godly. Okay? So I experience it. I learn through experience. I know through intellect as I do it. But then it produces more fruits of the Spirit. In this case, maybe it's kindness. Okay? Then going forward, we have Hebrews chapter 12, verse 10. Honor one another above yourselves. I promise you, if godliness didn't come before this, this is not I am the biggest Dallas Shaw fan I know. You know, nobody likes me. I've learned this part, you know. Nobody cares about Dallas like Dallas cares about Dallas. Oh, I love me some Dallas, right? <laughs> it was not, this is not natural for me, you know. I'm like, honor someone else above yourself. But then it doesn't need to say that. It says in Hebrews 13, 1, right, to love each other like brothers and sisters. So what blew my mind is when I was listening to uh, Dr. Bailey, you have the idea of the good Samaritan and loving your neighbor. And I'm like, okay, loving your neighbor. And who's my neighbor? Well, everybody's your neighbor. Where does it end? This one goes further. It says that I'm not just supposed to love y'all like my neighbor, that we're supposed to love each other like brothers and sisters, a familial relation, a blood relationship in Christ. And I'm supposed to honor the brothers and sisters above myself. That's huge. I mean, and that's, I don't think that's natural. And then we look in John 21, 17, where, where Jesus makes a distinction. Paul makes a distinction, or excuse me, Peter makes a distinction between philos, or a brotherly love, and agape, that there is that there's a measure, that there's a difference, that, that one is a step below the, the uh, sacrificial love. Where we look up here and we see 12, Romans chapter 12, verse 10. Or I'm, I apologize, Philippians 3, 7 through 10. Right? Where it tells us that whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What's more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him. And then in Matthew 10, 37, it says, anyone who loves his father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son and daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who doesn't take up their cross daily and follow me is not worthy of me. So now that, we, now that we've gotten all the fruits of the Spirit and we've looked at this depth, the one thing I'd like to go back is back to the beginning. I think that what Paul was talking about in the very beginning when he says that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, it's our sacrificial love for Jesus Christ. And how can you love someone that you don't know concretely? Right? And so it's the knowledge and the depth of insight, this experiential and intellectual knowledge of Christ lived out for however long you have. If it's a deathbed confession, well, then you've got a little bit of time, right? If it's a lifetime, if you were saved at seven, you've got a lifetime to experience this, okay? And to what end? To produce, to discern what is best, that we may be able to be pure and blameless and produce the fruits of righteousness. Okay.
So our discussion questions, okay? What love is it, however noble, that competes with our affection for Christ? And what would it look like day to day if this lesser love was replaced with Christ? Two, in what practical ways have you seen this idea of that we know something in theory, that we, that we act in faith and we experience and we learn through experience in our walk with Christ? And three, in what ways has your relationship with Christ more personal, more intimate, and more concrete than when you first believed? Okay. You don't mind, we'll go ahead and pray. Lord, thank you so much for this time. I pray that we would, you would move our conversations, that you'd move our hearts, that we'd follow hard after you. We love you and we ask all things in Jesus' name. Amen.